a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. It is my pleasure to be joined by Chris Ryan for this segment. The pleasure's all mine. The pleasure is always all his. Um, Chris has been out there. uh, I've seen him with his microphone over the uh, past uh, weekend, uh, trekking around New Hampshire following political candidates. Uh, so things are heating up here in New Hampshire. We're headed towards the New Hampshire Democratic Party State Convention. It's we all, are. It's all Next getting weekend. very exciting. Very, It's the only place to be. Thousands of thousands of progressives and moderates and whoever else makes up the Democratic Party, plus a lot of national, regional, local press are going to gather at the Schnoo Arena, which used to be the Verizon Center, but now it's the Schnoo Arena, uh, to uh, listen to now 20 candidates. Yesterday, of course, it was 21 candidates. Kirsten Gillibrand has left the race. And so now the speaking order, everybody gets an extra uh, three seconds because Kirsten has left the race. How long do the candidates get to speak? I heard a rumor it was only like five minutes. It depends. Um, I think, here's what I think, but I'm not sure. What I think is that if you're in favor of the, if you're in the favor of the state Democratic Party and they think of you as their top tier candidate, i.e. somebody who's bought the mailing list, I think you get 10 minutes. And if you're not, if you didn't buy the mailing list, I think you get seven minutes. But maybe everybody gets seven minutes and maybe I'm wrong. I'll, I'm, I'm soon going to find out. But yeah, you are soon going to find, find out. Find out. <laughs> the, the, I, I can tell you that the clock starts apparently. You're going to find out about 30 seconds after you the, just said that. I know. The clock starts as soon as you stand, uh, somebody stands up. So if you, what I've been told is if, and full disclosure, I'm, I'm working with a particular candidate whose name I won't mention, but I'm working with a candidate on this. So I was at a briefing yesterday. We went all over the arena to see the suites and the floor and where the press will be and the holding pens for the candidates and how it all works and where the booths are going to be because there are going to be all kinds of booths. Apparently, they say they have a hundred different vendors, including tables for the 20 candidates. Um, But so the clock starts when either your introducer or your welcome music comes on. That eats into your seven minutes. So let's just say it's seven minutes. Candidates uh, who are used to talking a long time, and I know some of them uh, really well, are going to have to boil down a message. Or they might get their mic cut. They might. Their mic is cut mic at, cut. at seven minutes. The <laughs> mic even play with is just turned off. Yeah. Okay, folks. So. It's actually one of the best things that's ever happened in politics because, I, yeah, because I if, if you're like me, there is no way 
you know, I mean, compressing what I what I want to say into six minutes, it's impossible. Chris had to give me a whole hour show just just so I could rant, you know. And just, you go over every single time. And almost. I go over every time because I like to talk. I mean, people said people say, "Why are you doing radio?" And the answer is, "I like to talk." And I paid for this microphone, Mister Green. So uh, here we are. But so anyway, the candidates get seven minutes. And uh, it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating time. We hear from 20 different presidential candidates. Uh, It sure beats uh, the debates where you're only going to get the next debate. You're only going to get to hear from 10 candidates um, gate kept by the DNC and the major corporate media. So as we transition here into um, what is expected to take place in the next uh, 2020 election. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to what you feel um, about the economy at this point and the role that the economy is going to play in this upcoming election. As we're hearing continued concerns in regards to um, possible slowdown, possible recession. Two states are already in recession, North Carolina and Minnesota. Um, and there's a lot of uh, nonpartisan economic observers who are saying that, yes, a slowdown is upon us. Now, given how uh, deeply tied consumer spending is to our economy, if individuals start to tighten the the belt buckle, so to speak, um, that could very easily become a self-fulfilling prophecy where it become a recession happens as a result of individuals hearing about the fact there may be a recession. So I'm curious as to how you feel that plays, particularly in regards to the politics here at the state and national level. Well, look, um, as, as, as many observers uh, and pundits and history tells us, um, elections are often decided on economic issues. Uh, if you are an observer of the current uh, democratic debates and process, uh, there's um, almost nothing being asked, at least so far, about any of the foreign policy issues which are pressing and, frankly, which affect um, certainly the psychology uh, as well as the national security of the nation. So, um, as Chris, you've said, uh, there are pundits and observers and economists who are noting uh, signs of a slowdown. And, and this is actually a global slowdown. We've had uh, 10 years of uh, relatively robust growth um, beginning uh, after the uh, calamitous slowdown uh, and near depression of uh, 2008 and nine, uh, the economy has been uh, what people call recovering, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and we've had a, a pretty pretty good growth uh, under both the uh, Obama administration and, uh, to some measure, under the uh, first couple of years of the current administration. Uh, the stock market. Um, has uh, reached uh, new highs. Uh, It is now relatively volatile, um, up and down uh, at various times, 500, 600 points a day, up, down, 200 or 300 is no longer a, um, a, 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 a anything notable. Uh, so um, we've gotten a pretty hot stock market at the same time. Um, what uh, 
economists and observers see is that the in the business community, um, uh, both confidence in the direction of the economy and plans for hiring um, uh, are down. Um, business owners like stability. Business owners count on uh, smooth sailing uh, to be confident about uh, whether they're going to invest, whether they're going to hire, and the prospects for business. We have complete chaos in the White House. Uh, there's a the president is Mad King George. Um, not only does he appear to be uh, mentally impaired, his policies uh, change uh, depending on his mood and uh, how quickly he can tweet. Uh, the administration doesn't have anybody in place who really understands the economy. He has inflicted a, a trade war, which has global repercussions. Um, while on the one hand, uh, you can applaud the president for standing firm with China, and um, China has not always been uh, the kind of actor that we'd like it to be. So people longed for a president who would stand up to China. On the other hand, this uh, bizarre, escalating, tit-for-tat trade war with tariffs uh, has produced chaos and destruction uh, for many in the American economy. And no doubt, soon consumers are going to feel the sting. Farmers feel the sting. Um, in uh, up in Maine, the lobster business uh, has suffered a calamitous uh, event. Um, used to be that uh, the Maine lobstermen uh, uh, sent a lot of lobsters overseas, uh, and with the tariffs, that has fallen off. Uh, Trump keeps saying that he's going to impose higher and higher tariffs on China. In fact, he just. Uh, tweeted recently that he was going to ratchet up his tariffs from 25 to 30 percent. China is a huge player in the global economy. It is a huge market for America. And China has responded by ratcheting tariffs on American goods, which um, have caused havoc, especially among farmers. You talk to farmers in the Midwest or uh, anywhere else that depend on sending uh, grain or other farmed goods to China, and you hear uh, you hear bad news. Um, so all of that, the instability, the chaos, uh, the craziness in the White House do, does not spell uh, – it doesn't lay out a pretty picture for the American economy. You combine uh, the Trump tariff trade war, the instability and chaos he creates every day with his policies and tweets – you combine that with um, a 10-year run and an inevitable slowdown at some point. You take a look around uh, the world at other major industrialized nations who are also experiencing uh, the effects of the global instability, the effects of uh, a time to pull back perhaps in, in the usual course, and you very well could be looking at an economy in recession uh, by the time the 2020 election uh, uh, is upon us. Now, Trump's um, poll numbers are already low. Uh, recently, I saw something online which said uh, his uh, negative poll numbers um, had fallen uh, dramatically again. 
and he's desperate, clearly, to try to uh, talk his way into an economy that doesn't go into recession. But he really doesn't have much control given what he's done. Uh, Do we expect him to simply cancel his tariffs and his trade war with China? Hardly. He's not a guy who uh, who who does that? Although let's give it to him, uh, one of the qualities he he displays is such a lack of consistency that, for all we know, he could turn things around on a dime. Um, but the demented uh, King George, the mad King George in the White House, just came back from the G7 summit where he was completely mar- marginalized, isolated. He might as well not have been there. Um, he's coming back uh, to the United States with um, nothing to show out of the G7 summit. And the United States is no longer even being seen, apparently, as the indispensable party, the moral force uh, and stability in the world. Uh, Trump and his administration have said nothing about uh, the protests in Hong Kong and uh, what may be Chinese military action. Uh, They've said nothing about uh, human rights uh, around the world. They've said nothing about uh, the fires in the Amazon. They've done nothing on climate change Um, with the instability and chaos and worldwide slowdown, uh, I do think that the economy is going to play a real, uh, a, real, a real role, as it usually does in the presidential election. Because whatever happens around the world, uh, in the end, pocketbook issues are what uh, really drive elections and election results and feelings among uh, consumers. Right now, Uh, The American people are being whipsawed back and forth by a tyrannical autocrat uh, who appears uh, to be losing his marbles. And I'm not the only one saying that. Uh, There's a real discussion on television, maybe not Fox, but uh, on other reputable uh, news outlets about the 25th Amendment. Uh, I know that uh, Republicans of conscience Uh, are deeply concerned about the effects of a Mad King George presidency uh, on Republican prospects in 2020. Um, There are Senate seats now in play for Democrats that would never have been considered in play. And especially if uh, the economy falters the way it looks like it will, and especially if the Democrats can choose Uh, a candidate who has an understanding, even a functioning adult understanding of the global economy, the way that trade uh, 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 impacts our our economy, has an eye for uh, rectifying the income inequality um, that in the long term is a drag on our economy, the Democrats have good prospects for taking back uh, power in the White House uh, and even uh, retaking a majority in the Senate and keeping the majority in the House. Um, I think that 2020 has the makings of a landslide for Democrats. Uh, So we'll see what happens, but the economy is going to play a role. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet 
We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we're also archived for your binge listening pleasure. Fire up those thumbs, turn on your computer and your personal assistant digital devices, and you can go to nhtalkradio.com, find Off the Record, and listen to all our past shows. We're also a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes for those 21st century denizens of the dark places on the internet. Go to a podcast now and then and you can listen to our show. I'm very pleased uh, to welcome back uh, a friend and guest from long time ago, Mary Keegan Meister. Welcome back to Off the Record. Thank you, Paul. I'm happy to be here. So, Mary, you are the executive director of the Story Preservation Initiative. Correct. Tell us a little bit about, give us some background on SPI, Story Preservation Initiative. What is it? What are you doing? What are you up to? And why are you doing it? Well, I've been at this for nine years, almost exactly nine years. And what we do is we do a bunch of different things, including uh, seek out people who are doing rather extraordinary things or who have lived through extraordinary events, and we ask them to share their story with us. We audio record it, and it rain- the stories range from everything from uh, astrophysicists who are exploring our universe to... Holocaust survivors, to poet laureates, scientists, environmentalists. And so it's a, it's a collection that is, and I am biased, but I think that this is a reasonable thing to say. It is fascinating. These are first-person, primary source stories, and we use them to engage and educate and excite and, and inspire young people. So we get them into, cl- into uh, schools, and then we work to create projects and lesson plans that will deepen the learning. So the, the stories is really, uh, it's educational, but it's, it's really the engagement piece. And then uh, the kids take a deeper dive. Uh, So that's one thing, and I'm just talking too much, but I will keep going. The other thing that we have recently done is... By the way, you're not talking too much. It's radio, and that's what we're doing. We're just talking. We're just yakking. Recently, as in um, it will launch in September, and this is August 29th. So um, it is a a variation on what I just described. It is uh, what I just described is called uh, Story Preservation Initiative Learning Lab. And it's designed more for kids in junior high and high school, but we do say grades 4 through 12. Some of the stories, some of the projects are good for younger people. What we have just, uh, what we will be launching is a younger uh, child learning lab K through three, that also involves story, but it involves folk tales and fairy tales and 
fictional stories that really grab kids. Uh, We have enlisted the help of and the stories of uh, master storyteller Odds Bakken, who uh, is known nationally, but certainly well-known in New Hampshire because that's where he lives. So we have uploaded uh, several of Odds' stories into our K-3 through storytelling learning lab. And the, the um, goal of this is to initially test for, it's a pilot project, its effect, the sto- listening to stories and being involved in related projects. Uh, what we'll be testing for is engagement and literacy to the extent that we can do it with a limited number of stories. But it really is trying to get kids to love listening to stories and love all the imagination that goes along with that, which we're hoping will um, then translate in later years to a love of reading and literacy. Hmm. So that was long-winded, but there you have it. So how did you start down this road, this path? What... What was the what was your impetus for starting out on this rather extraordinary adventure in stories and education? It has been an extraordinary adventure. And nine years ago when I started, I didn't have the vision of what I would be sitting here talking to you about today. All I knew was, uh, and for my whole life really, I have been interested in people and people's stories. And uh, storytelling has become kind of a, a buzzword. It's, it's become something a lot of people talk about. It, it's corporate, it's educational, it's all those things. I wasn't in that framework. I wasn't saying, okay, well, what's, what's, what's the next thing coming down the pike? And, and when I started this, it's when that whole storytelling thing um, kind of hit, hit mainstream. I wasn't thinking that. I was just thinking, I want to meet, okay, a little bit uh, selfishly, I want to meet cool people. I want to have a reason to call someone up and say, can I meet you? Can I talk to you? Can I learn about what you do? Um, So that part is the best uh, on a personal level. And I have to say that's probably where it started, selfishly, that I wanted to do something that I loved. I wanted to make a business out of it somehow. Story preservation is a nonprofit. And as I began to collect these stories, I wanted to share them. And it just made perfect sense that the best place to share them was with young people. So um, storytelling is woven deep into the fabric of human DNA. I mean, gathering around fires, ancient humans told stories. It was entertainment. It was education. It was passing on traditions. It was the way um, that humans uh, explained uh, our place in the cosmos. It was uh, and and is kind of the fundamental uh, the fundam- a fundamental 
part of human existence. It, it's really, it's deep. I mean, as a musician, I know that stories and storytelling and the oral tradition are critical to passing on music. Um, and uh, so, so nobody has to, to justify storytelling as something that is really, really important um, in civilization. It, it, is, it is one of the core elements of civilization. The ability to recall, recant stories uh, is one of the things that makes humans human, actually, at least in my opinion. I'm not an expert in anthropology or uh, anything else. I'm a generalist. <laughs> but but storytelling is critical to the way we live life, the way we perceive uh, our sur- surroundings, and the way we understand our place in the world. Um, you've been able to create an, an extraordinary not-for-profit institution which um, uh, captures the essence of that important thing and also use it in education. Are, are you an educator by trade? Were you trained in education? Um, what, what, was the, what was your background before coming to Story Preservation Initiative? My background, uh, I've got a, a, a varied past. Um, but if you look at it in the rear view mirror, you will see a very clear thread or connection that, that really has gone through my entire life even though it's manifested itself perhaps in different ways, um, I have always written. I have always, in, in one manner or another, um, shared information either about people or about new products or about new things. And, and so, for example, when I was, gosh, in my... I'd say early 20s. Um, that's when I started writing for real. And I really, it was the seed of what I ended up doing. I, I was just doing it on my own. But I uh, would hear about somebody and I would, I would contact them, uh, similar to what I do now. I didn't have a, a mechanism whereby to, to get this thing out, but I just wanted to meet them. And so I met people relocating uh, sea turtles. And I met uh, the, um, a, a general in uh, World War II who was in Dresden. And I met, oh gosh, uh, Olympic biathlon uh, contender. And I would call them and just say, would you talk to me? I, I want to know about what you're doing. And um, I want to write about it. And then I would sell it to a magazine or something like that. But that was just kind of on my own. Um, my first real job uh, was in the communications department at Save the Children, which uh, is an international nonprofit. And I wrote. Um, I wrote about what we were doing. I, you know, it was a, I was young. It was an entry-level job. But they really exposed me to a, a ton of different things. So I was the photo librarian. So I got, I got pictures coming into me from all over the world. And I did a lot of broadcast media, and I did, um, I did writing for a newsletter. I did all that kind of stuff. And then that continued to moving to New Hampshire from Connecticut. And at that point, I started, uh, I think I've always had a need and desire to kind of 
do my own thing. Um, so I started a copywriting uh, and marketing business, and I, I did pretty well with it. I did that for, a, gosh, about um, 15 years. I had super clients, who I, some of whom I, I still keep up with, primarily in New Hampshire and the resort and tourism industry, but also in high tech. So I was writing. I wrote for a high tech company. I did uh, hardware catalogs, which if you knew me, you would know how ridiculous that is. But it was interesting because it was something that I knew nothing about. And my job... This wrench, this wrench sits in your hand like a treasured object. That's right. Shining silver, perfect wrench for any job. High quality, low luster, this wrench is exactly what you need to turn any nut or screw. And you need it <laughs> now. And you need it now. <laughs> yeah. So, so anyway, that, that's, yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm I get yakking that, too know, much. This hammer is unlike any hammer that you've ever hefted. This hammer has been balanced by gnomes in Alaska for the perfect heft for any job. Okay. Yep. Yeah. To this hammer, every nail is a target. Yeah. So so that's me. Yeah. And then uh, the hardware writer. Got a no, not that kind of hardware, computer hardware. I see computer hardware. I was wondering where yeah. that came Touch from. any key on this fabulous well, keyboard. Well, this is why I say it's ridiculous. And it responds like the keys. It responds like middle C on an 1890 Steinway. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, da 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 did that quit that because I couldn't I didn't want to do that anymore. And uh, I wrote a kid's book. And so on and on we go. Until so a, a varied background. Varied, but with a, th w with a commonality to all the various iterations. Right? There you go. Yep. So we're talking with Mary Keegan-Meister, who is the executive director uh, and the uh, major major person in charge of Story Preservation Initiative. I'm not sure what your title is, Mary, but you're everything. I am the it's chief mucky muck. The chief mucky muck at Story in Preservation charge. Initiative, a yep. remarkable not-for-profit based in New Hampshire, uh, which takes stories and translates them into remarkable educational tools. Um, this is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. AM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're going to take a very short break to listen to important messages from very important people who help keep this radio station on the air. And we'll be back after this. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the Internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we're also archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can listen to us anywhere, anytime, any place on the planet Earth. You can find 
Off the Record with Paul Hodes, and I think you should. We're talking to Mary Keegan-Meister, who is the Chief Muckety-Muck at Story Preservation Initiative, a remarkable not-for-profit institution in New Hampshire. Going on now nine years, Mary and Story Preservation Initiative collect the stories of notables in the arts, sciences, and humanities and transform those stories as the basis for integrated curricula and educational experiences, experiential learning for kids of all grades at this point. Uh, We're having a fascinating conversation in our first segment with Mary. We talked a little bit about her eclectic background, which led her to start this remarkable institution, which has grown over time. And now, Mary, coming back, um, so how many schools have you worked with? And and my, my recollection is that you started out uh, simply collecting fabulous stories from incredible people in the art sciences and humanities, a variety from astrophysicists and nuclear physicists and naturalists and musicians and painters and all kinds of folks, but that you gradually, at some point, understood that these could be enormously helpful uh, for educational purposes. Um, how did that how did that transformation of story preservation initiative hit you? How did that take place? Well the the aside from this selfish aspect which I touched upon before and really just wanting to get out there record meet and record these people. Um then it became clear that the value was great to me but but there but there's no greater value if they don't get out into the world. So the first step was to find a couple of library archives. I initially went to the New Hampshire State Library. That was great. Uh, I just gave them discs. Uh, uh, But then I went to the Library of Congress, explained what we were doing. And so there is the Packard campus, their audio-visual archiving, and all of our recordings are archived there. They will be online at some point, but there's a big queue for the Library of Congress. Went to for Holocaust, then I began to seg- segregate it, segment it. The uh, Holocaust stories, which we have, which are um, tremendously important. I went to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum and said, we have these. And, and they were delighted because uh, they did not have stories from these particular people. And these were stories that they wanted. These are people that they knew. Uh, For example, Samuel Bach, a woman at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, said, I have been meaning to get his story for years. Thank you. So if you go to that site, our our stuff is there. It's up. It's archived. It's it's online. Other stories went to other libraries. Um, And then Virginia Berry, who is the former... Uh, Commissioner of Education for the State of New Hampshire. I made an appointment to meet with her. I and told she, her. She, by the way, is an experienced educator, uh, former commissioner uh, of education, uh, who really knew about education. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She was, she was uh, very high on my list of people to meet in the state and anywhere for that matter. And I met with Virginia, and um, she got it immediately, um, which is exactly the way she is. She understands education. She understands innovation in education. And she said, yes, let's let's do something 
to get this to, into school. She joined the board of directors. And um, that, at that point, and I get a little fuzzy with years, likely was 2013. Um, at that point, the Learning Lab was launched where we, we developed a website, uploaded all this audio into that website, and began the whole process of developing the lesson plans and projects and then marketing it to schools. So um, being the head of a nonprofit is a, uh, not for the faint of a heart um, or for the uh, – unless you have very deep pockets yourself, it, it's, it's a toughie uh, in terms of making a go of it. So initially what we tried to do with the Learning Lab was to make it subscription-based – uh, and we did that for a while, but that's an obstacle to impact. Uh, a lot of schools don't have the money to do that. There are a lot of educational um, sites online, and they're very good. They're, you know, PBS Learning Media and Smithsonian. And so story preservation is one of a lot. And, but however, what we do is unique. Uh, it's not like the others. It complements the others. But the others are free. And there's a big movement in education to not pay for these online resources. And I understand that. So that was an experiment that failed. We are now a free, accessible to all uh, educational resource. And, and with that, um, our numbers are growing. We're in schools in New Hampshire, in Massachusetts. We're moving into Vermont. We're moving into Connecticut. We're not geographically based because we're online. So uh, it's it's a process, and uh, we we move onward. So if it's a free resource for schools, um, it's a free resource. Excuse me, free resource for anyone for public libraries for homeschoolers. You name it. So how is uh, SPI supported? Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of rough. Um, we get funds in from foundations, and we believe in this. You know, it's, uh, I've, I have made a commitment. It's, it, story preservation is not only what I do, but at this point, I think it's fair to say it's, it's who I am. So I've gone years that were pretty lean, but that's, that's life, you know, or, or it's my life. So, yes, we go to foundations. We um, were able to get grants. We're able to grow the resource. My feeling is, the goal is, as our impact increases, foundations will play a role, but so will corporations. So will uh, private individuals have been very helpful in supporting us. Um, so it's it's a it's a mix of different funding sources. So it's it's you're supported by folks who understand the importance of innovation in education. Yes, uh, because this is an innovative approach to education. Mm -hmm. The our educational system, and I want to just talk with a little bit about that with you, because um, I've been giving an awful lot of thought to education, the importance of education, the priority of education, uh, because frankly, unless our 10-year-olds are educated today. Um, we're not going to have the kind of society uh, and economy that we want to have in 10 years from now because those 10-year-olds 10 10 in just a quick 
short decade are going to be 20-year-olds, and they're going to be getting out of high school, technical schools, college, looking for work, and the way they're educated and what they know, how they, how they, how they learn, how they interact with people are, is obviously critical to our future. Yet, from my perception in a place like New Hampshire is, we give an awful lot of lip service to the importance of education, but uh, the current political structure um, uh, doesn't really seem to value our children and education. How can you prioritize, say that you prioritize education in our future when uh, what passes for an adequate education uh, in New Hampshire in terms of adequate education funding is disparate, uh, unequal, uh, and inadequate? Uh, I think that in order to uh, successfully navigate the 21st century, create the kind of uh, economic future for the state we want to create, um, an adequate education is by its nature inadequate. We need excellent education. And we've got, by and large, an educational system which was designed at the beginning of the last century by major industrial powers to create robotic factory workers who uh, would get in line, think alike, answer bells and whistles on time, uh, not complain, not uh, ask questions, and um, suffer under whatever authority uh, happened uh, to be taking place in the factory. And it was very successful in the 20th century. We grew a large industrial and manufacturing base uh, with a 20th century educational system. But now things have changed. The world has changed. Um, we're in a new century, and it's a chaotic century. We face enormous challenges uh, in terms of building a skilled workforce. And the qualities that I hear about from business leaders that they're looking for in uh, their workers who used to be students are very different. They want people who think for themselves, who think independently, but at the same time are adept at working with others in social situations, who have an approach to their work and their life and their learning that um, is well-rounded, that includes humanities and arts, that is more about an educational system that teaches kids how to learn um, and doesn't spoon feed in rote memorization the kind of learning that I often suffered through when I was a kid. Enter innovative experiential learning where kids take control in a way of their own education with resources such as those provided by Story Preservation Initiative and using the resource of stories create projects which engage the whole person uh, in an integrated way. So um, full disclosure, I'm on the board of Story Preservation Initiative. I think I'm the chair and I'm a fan uh, because uh, it's something that um, uh, I, when I was uh, on the active roster of the um, New Hampshire Council for the Arts, the State Council on the Arts, my wife Pego and I would go into schools. We'd sing, we'd sing um, uh, music. We'd have, we'd talk with the kids, um, and uh, would do projects with them around music. That was an example of experiential learning. That's what SBI is bringing into classrooms, and it must be a godsend for teachers who are tired of teaching to tests, to kids who are tired of being told, um, you know, fill out multiple choice exams. Uh, they're getting to do something exciting and real uh, that they own. Um, so 
the work is really important, but it's also important for the state of education. What are you seeing in New Hampshire schools, um, and what kind of difference is SBI making? And I'll just give you um, a fair warning that we have about uh, two minutes left for you to explain all that well, to I'm, our listeners. I'm going to backtrack, and I'm going to talk real fast. Um, I want to talk, talk about overly fast. <laughs> Never works. Okay, I want to talk about uh, teaching kids how to think. And I want to talk about the role of primary source material in in that. Um, whenever you listen to a, a first-person story, whoever is listening to that has got to take into account this is this person's experience. This is this person's opinion. So it really, by its very nature, builds critical thinking skills and creative thinking skills, uh, both of which are needed in 21st century students in schools in the workforce. Um, so, so that's something that I wanted to talk about. As far as where we're at, you know, in in the state of New Hampshire, uh, there's resistance to this with from some teachers, and I, I wish I didn't have to say that. Kids love it, uh, and I can say that unequivocally. Teachers. Some teachers love it. Some teachers are afraid of it because it's different, because um, it's, it's just it, you, you need to let the kids go. You need to let the kids listen to the story, think it through, look at the projects, decide in, in where they want to take this. In all cases, you are building content knowledge. You are um, b- building critical and creative thinking skills, literacy, collaboration. It's, it, it is all there. So uh, it's a process, just like the whole educational system is is changing, it's turning over, it's maybe moving slowly, but it will change. We've been talking with Mary Keegan-Meister, the chief muckety-muck of Story Preservation Initiative uh, in New Hampshire, an experiential learning mecca. Uh, taking primary source stories of notables in the arts, sciences, and humanities, and creating uh, educational projects uh, extraordinaire, uh, free to teachers and students and parents and anybody who's interested uh, in great stories of great people and how to use them in an educational setting. Uh, The website is? Uh, Storypreservation.org is the main website. If you want to get to the learning labs, you just click on, it says K through 3 and 4 through 12. Click on there. You register one time to set up a username and passcode, and that's the end of it. You're in. So pretty easy. And this is Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com. Thank you, Mary, for joining us. We'll have you back, and we'll be back to wrap up after this.